It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. Here on This Might Get Uncomfortable, I'm going to assume Whitney's favorite parts of doing this podcast is not only the broad diversity of perspectives and expertise and guests we have on here, but the pre-show banter is always such a wonderful point of the podcast because I feel like, you know, when the mics go on, maybe we creep a little bit into like professional mode, but before the mics go on, it's always an, a window into intimate details about a person's life that maybe we don't necessarily get to in the podcast. And today's guest, Natalie Johnson, welcomed us into her home and we got to li- know a little bit more about her, her soon-to-be husband and their adorable relationship and their beautiful energy. And Natalie, we met you and became familiar with you through Clubhouse. That's where you and Whitney connected. And vis-a-vis, Whitney gave me all of your links and your websites and your Instagram handle. And I had a chance to dive a little bit deeper into your work in this world. And before we dive in for the next, I mean, at least hour, I'm sure we're going to go deep again in the deep end with no floaties with you because you're ready. I know you're game for this. But before we do that, I want to set a little foundational framework on what you do as you build wealth for black women, people of color, helping them to find their wealth mindset, all the great work you do, which we'll dig into. The first thing, of course, that I dug into when I got to your website was this phrase that apparently has blown you up on, on Clubhouse. We're going to talk about that too. I deserve to be rich. Now, when I read that line, it did a few things to me. Like I literally said it out loud. And there was a part of me that felt really uncomfortable saying that out loud. And then I sat with it and went, why am I so uncomfortable saying that phrase? I deserve to be rich. I want your perspective on that. And I, as we do, sometimes these become therapy sessions and I'm like, oh, I didn't know I had that belief system. Holy crap. Before we unpack the uncomfortableness of the power of saying that or the discomfort of saying that, how do you define rich? How do you define wealthy? What is your framework on that, Natalie? Because I feel like when we talk about wealth, when we talk about riches, we talk about abundance, people can have wildly different answers. So how do you define rich? How do you define abundance and wealth for your life? I love it. Abundance is the opposite, the antithesis of scarcity. Abundance is believing there is always more. And if you believe that there is always more, then you won't settle for less. If you believe that there is a plethora of well-paying, fulfilling jobs, you won't work a low-paid, crappy one. If you believe that there are attractive, handsome, intelligent, honest, monogamous photographer men out there, then you won't deal with lying, shitty cheaters. If you believe that there's always more money coming, you won't take problem clients, what I call dumb money. So that's abundance. It is believing that there is more, that I have options and I get to choose, that I'm the author of this destiny and I get to decide how much I have. It's having a never-ending basket of fries at Fridays. It's never-ending apps. It's, I don't like how these chicken wings taste. I think I'd rather have the potato skins and they bring them at no charge. 
right? It's abundance. And I think I like the, I deserve to be rich and we'll unpack that later. But rich just means I have a lot of money. It is a very superficial type of thing. Lottery winners are rich. Pro athletes with no financial literacy are rich. But I like to use that word because it triggers people. (laughs) And it's funny that it does because it's so binary. It's literally cut and dry. There is rich and poor. And you can draw a line of distinction, whatever that line is, 1 million, 10 million, 100 million, whatever your definition is. But it's flat out. It's a very shallow. It's a superficial type of wealth. Rich. Wealth to me encompasses richness, but it also encompasses wellness. It encompasses physical health. It encompasses a lifestyle. It's the difference between going on a diet and changing into a holistic practice of yoga, healthy eating, and sufficient sleep. That is the difference between rich and wealth. Wealth is a lifestyle. It is a mindset. It is a belief system. And because you believe these things, you start to attract them. So next thing you know, you have the right clients. You have programs that draw people. You have more money. You're getting more sleep at night. You have more sex with your spouse. You're fulfilled. That is wealth. It is not just dollar amount. Wealth is money you can't outlive. Wealth is rest and not feeling weary. Wealth is not having that anxious feeling in your stomach when you have to go back to work because you love your work and your work loves you. Wealth is the goal, but rich is what people think they want. And that's why it's not, I deserve to be wealthy. It's, I deserve to be rich. And I get to challenge people on that hot button word But rich is not what gets people. Deserve is what makes people uncomfortable in that sentence. But I digress. To me, wealth is the penultimate. It is an ascension of the top of the mountain of where you can go in life. It's not just about money. But even the Bible says that money answereth all things. So it's interesting to me how people will twist themselves into noble poverty I'm a good person because I don't have a lot of money and I don't spend a lot of money. And I'm, I mean, I guess I know lots of mean, poor people. I mean, I I don't know. (laughs) I would never try to attach those things. Like I don't attach goodness and wealth. I think people dislike rich because they've convinced themselves that rich people are evil. And thus the inverse must be true that poor people are good and downtrodden. And so to become rich, you have somehow stepped on poor people. And that is why people have a problem with rich and richness and riches, because they are under the false belief that rich people have somehow trampled upon poor people to get there. Some of them have, but I have been slighted, wronged and mistreated by poor people far more often in my life than rich people, just because I know more poor people. They're more numerous. So I think it's a mindset shift. But yeah, rich wealth continuums definitely the difference between, you know, keto diet fad and living a vegan plant-based diet where you look like Nia Long in your 50s. It's the Olsen twins versus Nia Long. (laughs) Man, the analogies, Natalie, are so fun and so spot on. 
And, you know, for me, I love the distinction that you made between wealth and riches, where the numbers in your bank account are not indicative of the vibrance, the health, the relationships, the connection with your family. One is a very singular thing. And I love the distinction you had where broadening it to wealth encompasses all these things. And I think it's important because one of the things that Whitney and I talk a lot about in many different iterations is the more toxic side of like the hustle culture in our world, which is like, get the paper, get the paper, get the paper, get the paper. And you ignore your relationships, your family, your sleep, your health, your eating. And I love that you brought it full circle into a broader approach of, yo, you can have all this money, but if you're sick and you're not sleeping and you're disconnected from the people you love, you're not really going to enjoy that money. And I think that's a huge, huge distinction. And I love that you pressed the red button on the word deserve, because that is the word for me when I read that phrase. It wasn't rich. It was the word deserve. And when I hit that and I looked at it for myself, I was like, deserve. And then I, I started thinking to myself, does that mean that like this is my birthright? That this is like my God-given opportunity to empower myself with riches? And also like to me, like when I think about having a lot of money, it's not so much the ego validation of looking at my bank statement going, ooh, look at all those zeros. It's like, what does money represent in my life? And to me, the word I always go back to is freedom. It's like, okay, well, if I have this money, I can donate it. I can pay for my friend's film project, my friends who need emergency surgery that don't have insurance, I can pay for them. I can buy my mom a house. I can go on a vacation. I can donate to nonprofits. Like Whatever it is, I think for me, riches represents freedom and choice. So the deserve thing was like, whoa, is this a birthright thing? Do I feel like, I don't know, that it is, that is the word and it's a deep thing and I'm actually still reflecting on it. Like, Does that mean that I believe that God, the universe, life, however people's belief systems favor certain people and not others? Is that part of my belief system I need to dismantle? Is it like, okay, you know, God is keeping score and like, you're going to be rich, but you're not. I mean, I think claiming deserving to be rich, it almost seems to me that what you're saying is, and correct me if I'm wrong, Natalie, like there is an even playing field, so to speak, and that you can claim it, or maybe there's not an even playing field. Maybe it's just like you have to have the determination and believe. So my question is, do you believe we are all on the same level of the playing field or based on where we came up in terms of being in a poor family or a rich family, our race, our color, our religion, our gender, is the playing field even or are we coming from different places? What's your belief system on that? I'll start with a quick vignette. I'll tell you about a little black boy who grew up in the Marcy Projects. He was born December 4th, 1969. His name is Sean. And he had two siblings, a single parent, a father who was absent, a mother who was going to school in the evenings and would be gone. And she didn't really make enough to make ends meet. And him being one of the older children and doing what the children in the projects would do, he started selling drugs. And one night he was mugged at knife point and it scared him. And he went home and told his mother what he had been doing. And his mother said, look, I don't need you to die in these streets. OK, I got this. I'm the adult. You just keep your head in your books. You go do something for yourself. And he said, OK, hip hop culture was prevalent in this period of time. It's the 80s now. 
he's in the boroughs, you know, the Bronx, you know, it's becoming a thing with the b-boy culture, but he couldn't dance, right? So he decided maybe I'll be an MC. And he released a mixtape that was not well received. He went to record labels and was turned away by four different record labels. And eventually he created his own label and signed an artist. That gentleman is Jay-Z. And Jay-Z was able to propel himself into becoming a billionaire. And a billion is 1,000 millions. And a million is 1,000 thousands. And there is no statistical reason. There is no logical rationale. There is no explanation. When I look at the census data about black people, it is impossible that Sean Carter accomplished what I just told you he accomplished. So how did he do it? How did he do it? He trained his brain. He believed that he could get out of the projects. It starts up, he believed it first. He visualized. He saw himself walking into offices and walking out with a check. He saw himself being famous. He cultivated his craft. He spends hundreds of hours. I'm a poet, I can tell you firsthand. Performing in front of strangers is nerve wracking. Now me, as a public speaker, I will admit, I have not prepared one word of what I will tell you all in the next two hours. I'm literally that impromptu. Speaking, prose, poetry, I spend hours, I craft and I learn and I memorize, I craft and I learn because the cadence has to be just so. It's a different type of performance. It's really imperative. And I say that to say, if Jay-Z had decided that selling crack was okay, he'd be dead by now because somebody would have stole his crack and killed him. If Jay-Z had decided that the projects weren't that bad, he would have married a little project chick and had babies there. And Jay-Z is 51 years old. He'd have grandchildren in the projects by now if he was still alive. He decided he didn't want to live in the projects. If Jay-Z had decided that he had no marketable talent or skill, that he was tall but not athletic, lanky, ugly, as society likes to call him. They call him a camel. They talk about his lips. You've never heard about the attractiveness of Jay-Z. Ever, ever. That's not what people talk about. As a matter of fact, they say he's rich and the only reason he got Beyonce was because of the money, because he was an ugly man. That's what society has put on Jay-Z, that he's an unattractive man with money. The only reason they don't call him flat out ugly is because he's black and that would look in poor taste. Why is he so successful then? Why is it? If it wasn't because he believes the statement, I deserve to be rich, then I don't know what else it could be. I don't have a better answer. So I'm not going to sit here and tell you that there's not racism because I've experienced it. I experienced it earlier today. I'm not going to tell you that the level playing, the playing field is level. My mother has two master's degrees. Obviously, I started off better than some white people, <laughs> arguably a lot of them. Middle class, my father is a Vietnam vet who has had a challenging life. He's hospitalized right now. And thinking back on how things have been for him has been tough for me. But my mother believed my child deserves better. I deserve better. 
So I'm going to leave this marriage so that my child can have a safe, peaceful home. What if she would have deserved differently or felt that way? How would I have turned out if I had had a different type of parent, a parent who believed that whoever you marry is who you're stuck with, whether they're good, bad or indifferent. And if he got to sell drugs or run the streets or be an alcoholic or sell your child to the sex trade, so be it. There's people who think that. Why is my mother so successful? She decided to be successful. So, yes, I think we are all level short mental illness. We are all on a level playing field of being able to decide whether we want more or whether we're content with what we have. Now, everyone's going to have different hurdles to jump to get past the deserving. But the mindset piece, that's where people are trapped. That's the whole crux of the issue. If you two decide today that this month you will make 50,000 this month, May, you will make $50,000, May, if you decide it's going to challenge your belief, you're going to have to start thinking $50,000 is a lot of money. Natalie is nuts. I can't just decide to make $50,000. Why did we invite this woman on this show? We are never getting another lead off of Clubhouse. What a crazy bitch. Hmm. I see why they got rid of affirmative action. All right. Well, we'll just have to try something else next week. Right. But if you really, really believe that, no, she's not crazy. But you know what? Crazy or not, we're going to go for it. Crazy or not, we're going to do it. We're not going to make an excuse. 50K. Hmm. What do we have that we can sell for 50K? We podcast. We podcast. Let's look at monetization on YouTube. Yeah, okay. Well, I'm not Jason Derulo, so it's probably not going to be $50,000. Okay, maybe we could teach a course, a course on how to podcast. Yeah, that's it. Our podcast has this many hits, this many views. People don't know how to do it. They're entrepreneurs. They love it. Maybe we could sell like a $47, like a what kind of equipment to buy, what kind of tech gear, you know, and maybe we could run a contest in our Facebook group where we give away a Yeti or something and then Maybe we'll do one-on-one coaching and we'll charge like $10,000 each. $10,000? Who's going to pay $10,000? Well, I don't know. Let's get on Clubhouse. Hell, Natalie's selling a lot of stuff on there. Let's, let's try it out. Let's host a room. How to make $50,000 a month podcasting. And you draw people in. And then suddenly, you have people DMing you to pay you, which is what's happening to me right now, by the way. And then it's not so crazy because then you get on a sales call and it's, Hey, you know, we're doing a beta. We were going to charge you 10,000, but, um, we'll charge you five. And somebody says, okay, I'll pay you 5,000 in full. And then you see the stripe notification and you're like, oh my God, like we just made $5,000. Dude, we're 10% there. We just got to do this nine more times. Your brain is a solution machine. We keep ourselves in purgatory because all we talk about is problems. But your brain wants a solution. You're hungry? Eat. Cook dinner. Go out to a restaurant, right? Your brain starts coming up with solutions once you say, I'm hungry. So say, I deserve to be rich. And watch your brain start to come up with solutions for the problem. Tell your brain, I have a problem. I have a poor relationship with money. I want more money. I want to be able to take care of my dad, who, even though he served tours in Vietnam, is not worthy in this country of insurance that will get him a home health aid. 
So when he gets tired or sleepy, if he falls asleep without his CPAP, if he forgets a dose of his Lasix, he's back in the damn hospital. He gave his life to this country. But he's not worthy of a home health aid. You know how angry that makes me? But guess what? I have money. So I'm going to fly my ass to Arizona and I'm going to hire somebody. And I'm going to pay him out of my pocket. And while I'm there, I'm going to find somebody who can deliver food that's low sodium for his heart condition. And I'm going to fly back and I'm going to take care of my clients. Tell me how you do that poor. You can't. So I think it's more, I don't think everyone's on a level playing field because I think some people are complacent. I think some people are perfectly happy with where they are. But I don't think that we are as oppressed as we have been. My mother drank out of colored only water fountains. My cousin Yvette Matthews was the first black person at the University of Alabama. She desegregated a college, a blood relative of mine. I'm one generation away from swimming in colored only pools. One generation. So maybe my mother can say, no, Natalie, there were things I absolutely could not do. But she doesn't say that to me. She looks at me and says, you can do anything, anything. And even with the outpouring of different political beliefs in the swing of presidents that we have had, you must admit when Obama won, there were cheers from all races of people. And it did show that we had made a progression in this country, that we elected someone who didn't look like the first 40 something people we had elected to this position. And that is monumental. So I'm not going to use my skin color as a crux and say, I can't do this because I'm black, because that gives my power away. That says that other people have the power of what I get to do. And I rebuke that. I say, if I want to make $20,000 this month, then I'm going to do it. Now, does that mean that racist people will be my customers? Absolutely not. But I believe racists are in a slim minority. They're just vocal as hell. I don't think that that's the majority of people. If I did, I wouldn't leave my house. I think most people are good people. They see me as wise, intelligent, sage, and they respect the hell out of me. Color be damned. So I would be remiss to say racists are going to keep me poor and give away my power. So no, I don't think that everyone's on a, a level playing field in their mind. But I think that if more people challenged themselves and said, I'm going to hold myself to a higher standard. This is the last year I'm going to be below the poverty line. Whatever that looks like. If I have to work two jobs, three jobs, create a business, sell plasma, I'm going to make it happen. I think it would happen more often, but you can't win games you don't play. And a lot of us just aren't playing the game. We just aren't in the game. So hopefully that helped. One of my big questions for you, Natalie, is have you always been this way? Because you're so what I perceive to be confident and self-aware and passionate and knowledgeable. And clearly your parents had a huge impact on you. So what is the journey from being raised that, you know, with, with such a strong mother. And it sounds like a, an, a wonderful father as well. Like what was your path from there? Have you been studying money and business? Um, was that something that you pursued in high school? Did you go to college? Like wh where's the, that journey for which you started to educate and, and grow from here? 
And is this was this a natural progression or or did you kind of have a a turning point in which this part of you started to develop? I love that you asked me this because I had to ask my best friend this question because I really didn't know. You don't feel it when you're in it. I'm in my own life. So I'm not as aware to changes as someone on the outside may be. And so, you know, I have always been this confident. I was a confident kindergartner. I had incessant affirmation. My mother read to me in utero. My grandfather called me a genius every day that he saw me until the last day that he lived. And so I always felt like I had a superior intellect. And when I was young, honestly, it was very isolating. I was chubby, acneed, crooked teeth, teacher's pet, straight A student with a mom who was a school teacher, a grandfather who was a retired school teacher and a great grandmother who was a retired school teacher, all in the same school district. So everyone knew my parents. Everyone knew my grandparents because the teachers who had been taught by my grandfather and the students had been suspended by my mother and I was entrenched in the school system. And if your mother suspends your friends, they aren't your friends anymore. And I was a telltale. I wanted everyone to follow the rules. I liked the rules because when I followed the rules, I got an A, right? So I didn't realize at that age that you could fail and follow the rules because I didn't. I succeeded when I followed the rules. So I was a rule follower. I have always been into money. I was entrepreneurial as a child. My mother sold everything, Melaleuca, Tupperware, Amway, cars, cooked meals, jewelry, wreaths, gift baskets. That was fun. Chocolate turtles. Oh, man. I mean, the, the hodgepodge. I mean, there's nothing, nothing. Life insurance. She still sells life insurance. I won't tell you my mother's age, but she was a Black Panther in Oakland in the 70s. So, yeah. Yeah, right? My mom was a Black Panther. Yeah. She owned a bakery called Tough Cookie, and the shirt was pink with a buff-ass cookie, like an Arnold Schwarzenegger cookie, (laughs) with big, crazy biceps on it. It was hilarious. And her slogan was, get the hell out of Oakland. Like, the actual hell. Like, the hellions. And she taught me early, don't be dependent on a man's income. Don't be dependent on one job. Always have you another iron in the fire, whatever that looks like. So coming up, you know, I um, made little jewelry, little string bracelets, and I sold them at school. And my mom said, you know, you could really sell more if you had a bigger audience, if you could get them in a store. So she took me down to the uniform store. It was owned by a black man whose last name was also Campbell in Mobile County, Alabama. Everyone wears uniforms. All the children in public school wear uniforms. So lots of kids came through. And I would weave these bracelets in the school colors, and he let me sell them there for a dollar. He didn't take any of the money, and I'd come by once a week and collect them. I was probably in the second or third grade. That did not seem unusual or atypical to me. In hindsight, I realized that very few children are running successful, profitable businesses at eight. But you know, when you have a mom like Annie, Everything seems normal, okay? I did go to college. I got a regular old vanilla business degree, pivoted from finance because 
Maybe it seemed hard at the time. I don't know. It was boring. Corporate finance, formulas. I said, eh, I don't know if I'll ever use this. I business management. So I get out into the world with my little shiny degree and realize nobody cares. And everybody thought business management was the same as business administration, which is a fallacy. Management is different. Management is the function of managing people. It is very similar to human resources. It deals with project management, logistics. It is very different than business administration, but it's hard to describe that to people who aren't in business. So I said, well, I'll go get an MBA. So I get an MBA. My MBA is in HR. And then I find out that you have to have experience, that I couldn't even get a $30,000 a year HR intern gig without years of HR experience. Well, tell me how you get the experience if you need the experience to get the experience. So here I am all shiny with six figures of student loan debt, a $1,200 a month payment, and a new job at the bank paying $34,000 a year. And I think to myself, I'm a schmuck, but at least I finally got on at the bank. I've always wanted to work at a bank. This is big and exciting, and it's a large bank. And then a scandal broke and some people have been doing some unethical things that got us in the news for several years. And then we lost our CEO and then our new CEO went to Capitol Hill and then they put restrictions on our company and how big it could grow. And, you know, I thought to myself, this is bad. This isn't going to end well. It's almost like COVID, right? It just keeps going and going and going and you start getting fearful that maybe this isn't going to end. It's kind of where I got, right? And I started thinking to myself, I sure miss when I got to help people. I used to work at what people call the bad branch, the poor branch, the ghetto branch. And I had clients with negative checking accounts and bad credit in the 500s and They'd sit down with their little taped up wallets and they'd tell me their stories of woe. And I'd look at them and tell them, it's going to be okay. I got you. And I didn't judge them and I didn't ridicule them. And I didn't ask them ridiculous questions like, why is your checking account negative? So that's kind of demeaning when I can see the exact charge that brought it negative, is it not? And I really started to feel like I was helping people. And then they moved me to an affluent branch. They gave me a promotion and it was significant. It was $15,000 a year, which percentage wise is huge, right? And so I was able to comfortably make my student loan payment. I was still working a second job, but um, frankly, I didn't even have to anymore. You know, I was doing good until I realized I was the only black person at the branch and that I kind of had to borrow white privilege of other coworkers to get stuff done. Like, let me bring this gentleman in the office in my meeting so you can, like, see that we're adjacent because they wouldn't do the deal with just me. So they would need, like, some comfort that there was, like, a white man around, you know, supervising, I guess. And, you know, I said, maybe maybe finance isn't my thing. I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to create a free Facebook group. That's what I'm going to do. Facebook's going to, that's going to fix all my problems. I have 3,000 Facebook friends. I've been putting tips about credit and financial literacy for years. That'll cheer me up. I'm going to create a group, a group, a group. That's what I'm going to do. And I did. And I started posting these tips and I started getting all these messages. Natalie, you helped me save on my car insurance. Natalie, you helped me get life insurance. Natalie, you told me that I could make more money. So I applied for a better job. And when my boss found out about it, 
he offered me a $2 an hour raise to stay. And I'm like, do you know that $2 an hour, 40 hours a week, 52 weeks a year is $4,160? Do you know that one of my free posts in my group net somebody $4,160 a year? A year? Because she asked. She wasn't any better. She didn't have to move. She didn't have to change who she was. Nothing. $4,160. I said, this is what I miss. I miss being able to help the underdog and actually change the trajectory of people's lives. The truth is, if you have $2 million in your brokerage account, nothing I say one way or the other is going to change the trajectory of your life. It's not. If I convince you to bring money over from Charles Schwab, I mean, you're wealthy. You're going to die wealthy. You're already wealthy. I get it. And that's not shooting off on wealthy people. I want to elevate people to wealth, not shuffle wealthy people's wealth around. That doesn't feel as impactful. And so I guess you could say I've been on this journey a long time. I just don't think I knew I was on this journey a long time. I think it's something that I have been doing intrinsically for so many years For me, it's just normal. If you friend me on Facebook, you can go back seven or eight years and find credit tips and budget tips. And so that's just what people come to know me for. They just friend me for that reason. But I maxed out my friends. And so I said, well, let me create the group so I can impact more people. But I think everything happens for a reason. I only started public speaking because of the bank. I was not a public speaker. I had nothing to speak about. I worked in a call center for Verizon selling iPhones. Quite poorly, I might add. I am tech illiterate. Zoom is difficult for me. I am the worst, least technically literate millennial ever. I'm an embarrassment to people born in the 1980s. The absolute worst. I'm an 80-year-old woman on a computer. And it drives Dave nuts. So... I think you just have to be aware, but I think even if you aren't aware, just be consistent. I haven't known I was helping people all this time, but by doing what I've been doing consistently for so long, I have been helping people for all this time. And now that I'm like, I'm going to strike out on my own. Well, I've got hundreds of testimonials that I didn't have to pay people for. I didn't have to beg people for. I didn't have to work hard for. I think when you're doing your purpose in life, what God put you here to do, it's not work. It would be work for me to not teach financial literacy. It would be painful for me. I would leave social media altogether if you told me I could no longer post financial tips to help people. That would be hard for me, that the internet would lose its usefulness if that is what someone told me. So yeah, I think, I think I've been at it a while. <laughs> so Well, there's two things in my mind I want to dig into, and they're totally different. So I'm going to leave with the first one. You talk about financial literacy, and it's something that not just behind the scenes, but on the podcast, Whitney and I have talked a lot about our personal approaches to paying down debt, our approaches to building more revenue streams individually and for our our business Wellevator and the podcast. And first of all, it's something that as I reflect, growing up in school, it was like not taught any of these things. It wasn't something that was taught in terms of like the implications of compound interest or compound debt or any of those things. And so being in school, for me at least, my formal education was not really hip to the intricacies of debt, compound interest, investing, leveraging real estate. This is all stuff as an adult. I was like, whoa, this is a whole world I had no exposure to. 
And so I think, you know, the interesting thing is we have some mutual friends, Whitney and I, that that are pro athletes. And and one in particular comes to mind. His name is John Sally. He played for the Detroit Pistons, my hometown, Chicago Bulls, LA Lakers. And he told me a lot of stories about guys that he would play basketball with that would come into the league and they would make millions and millions and millions of dollars, right? And next thing you know, they're buying all these houses and buying Ferraris and Mercedes for themselves and their family. And they get out of the league in four or five years and they're completely broke. You know, they had tens of millions of dollars, but because they didn't have that financial literacy, you hear stories about these cats that are some of them homeless. I mean, he was telling me a story about there was this this guy named Fennis Dembo who was a rookie on the Detroit Pistons championship team. I'm a huge basketball fan, by the way. And I just randomly asked him about Fennis. I was like, John, you know, do, do you keep in touch with Fennis? Like, what's up with him? He's like, dude, he had to pawn one of his championship rings. And last I talked to him, he was working at a car wash. Like, and this is a dude who won a championship with the Detroit Pistons who was paid millions and millions and millions of dollars. So my whole point is like, I love the fact that you're not just talking about how to gain more riches and wealth, but you're talking about becoming literate in maintaining and growing wealth. And I think that's absolutely crucial because so many people get rich and they lose the whole damn thing. And we don't hear one or two things. I mean, that's a cautionary tale that comes up over and over and over again in our society. So do you find that the people that are following you on social, the clients you work with, are they starting most of them from ground zero in terms of like me, never told about compound interest, never told about debt management, never told about real estate investing. Does that comprise the majority of people? Are you starting from like, let's say an elementary level in teaching financial literacy? I'm in two buckets. So my free Facebook group is the elementary. It is where you go if you've never had a budget, if you don't know what a high yield savings account, if you don't know what annual percentage yield means or why it's important. If you don't know what it means when I say the feds raised or lowered rates, if you don't have a conventional bank account, maybe you use prepaid, if you've never filed your own taxes, if you're one of those people who live off that tax refund, you look forward to it all year because it's the only time of year you've got enough money to actually get something done. I would say those are the people that are normally in my group. I don't monetize my group in any way. I don't solicit the people in my group. I don't want anything from them. It's there for informational purposes. But that's not who I coach. I have found, interestingly, that what I thought I would coach people on is not the help they need. You can't budget your way out of poverty. So if you have a business that's making $2,000 a month and you lose your job, what is the most useful thing to you? Me teaching you how to budget? Me opening you a savings account with Ally? me talking to you about the different types of IRAs that are open to you as a self-employed individual, or me showing you where you need to 10X that $2,000 a month, right? So I usually step in and say, why aren't you making more money? It's usually a limiting belief. People have a ceiling of how much money they allow themselves to have, back to that deserve thing, right? Maybe they think $100,000 is a lot of money. That's a good living. That's a, that's a good amount. Then that's usually where they will cap themselves. That person will have seven and $8,000 months and never elevate above that. And they can't figure out why they plateau. Well, because you told yourself that $100,000 is enough. So you, you're not going to make more than that. You can't. Your brain is not going to let you move past that upper limit that you set for your own self. 
It's worse than a glass ceiling. It's like a concrete ceiling. <laughs> so my job is to raise people's concrete ceiling or jackhammer through their concrete ceiling, right? You can make more money. And by making more money, it opens up the opportunities to fully fund your SEP IRA, open up a traditional or a Roth, have six months of living expenses saved, liquid, have CDs or 529 plans for all of your children, be able to afford a very large life insurance policy that creates an immediate tax-free estate for whoever outlives you. But if I got to talk to you about how you're going to make it on 2000 a month, it's going to be a very short tale. <laughs> so I don't think it would be enough to be to constitute coaching, more like a scolding, more like a brief reprieve. It's like a it's like a skit. Once upon a time, there was a poor little business owner who thought that she needed a coach. She actually needed to make more money. So I sent her on her revenue generating activities to have a wonderful life. Bye bye now. And they all lived happily ever after. I mean, I just. I have found it starts from earning more. That's the hurdle. Budgeting is easy. Budgeting is just telling your dollars where to go. Budgeting gets a bad rap. Budget is just every dollar has a job. Some of Natalie's dollars keep her fed. Some of Natalie's dollars keep her housed. Some of Natalie's dollars pay for her Lexus. Some of Natalie's dollars bought, you know, my clothes. Some of Natalie's dollars keep her entertained. Some of Natalie's dollars pay for her life insurance. Some of Natalie's dollars, some of Natalie's dollars, some of, they know what to do. They have jobs and they're happy because they have jobs. They're like little SpongeBob's. They are ready, ready, ready to abolish my goals. They love accomplishing. They're real people. My dollars are real. Maybe your dollars are inanimate objects. It's very sad for your dollars. My dollars do what I tell them to do. They are soldiers. They march into battle unabashedly. They are ants. Have you ever tried to stop a damn ant? That thing is ferocious. Ants lift like 20 times their body weight and they walk in that straight line and you got to kill an ant to stop it. Ants are little terminators and their exoskeletons really tough, man. Like I have a bank account full of ants and they swarm my goals. Okay, that's what you got to get. So when you don't budget, you cheat yourself because now you got dollars that don't know what to do. And I mean, if you've ever been in a job and had a crappy boss that wasn't really great with direction, you know what I'm talking about. If they don't tell you what to do all day, you don't get much done. It doesn't matter how good an employee you are. If you have a boss that does not define your role or give you any type of task or direction, it is impossible for you to be a good employee. You can't because you don't know what to do. So you just kill time. That's what dollars do. They run off. They are like little horny teenagers. They sneak out the window. They stay late at prom. They're nuts. They're nuts. These dollars, they are sneaky. They buy candles at Bath and Body Works. They buy ugly Louis Vuitton purses. You got to watch these dollars, yo. These dollars are like rogue agents until you give them defined roles. And then they're your best friend. They're employee of the year. They're magnum opus. They're the best ever, but only when you give them a directive. And so I would say quite a few of my clients are doing well. My best performing was making 40,000 a month before she met me. And so we're gonna scale that to 83 so that I can say I have a client who I scale to a milli, cause then, the price on Natalie goes up, right? My stock is going up once I say I turned a 28-year-old black woman into a seven-figure company. 
in a year, right? But in the meantime, I work with anybody. It doesn't even have to be women, just people in service-based industries or who have a product-based industry but want to pivot into service-based industries. They want a digital product. They want a workshop. They want a course. They realize that they're trading time for dollars and their time is finite and they want to scale. It's really hard to make more than 10, maybe $20,000 a month without some type of digital offer or group offer. If you're a coach, even if you're charging 5,000, how do you coach 20 people a month? How do you scale that? If I sign up four people this month, four people's manageable. What if I sign up four people next month? Because that's what I got to do to make the same 20K again, right? Well, now I've got eight people. That's a little rough. What if I sign up four more people that third month? Now I'm coaching 12 people. What if it's a six-month program? Like you're going to bottleneck. Around month three, four, five, you're going to get to a point where you can't take on another client. Not that you can't get clients to agree. You don't have the bandwidth to serve them because you got to coach them, remember them, learn them, talk to them, send them recaps, replay, action steps, be at their beck and call on Voxer. Even if you set boundaries, you have to remember these people. You have to take copious notes. You have to have a Google Doc. It's not as easy. People think, oh, that's so luxurious. Now that you coach people, are you kidding me? <laughs> that's a job. But I think I like helping people. I help winners win big. And that's not to say that people starting off aren't winners. It's undetermined because I don't have data. And I need data to be able to help you. I need you to tell me how much you charge. I need you to tell me how much you earn. I need you to tell me how you make your money, how you get your clients. How are you set up? Our first coaching call is foundations. Do you have a business license in your state, in your city, in your county? Do you have to remit sales tax? Do you know how? Are you paying your estimated quarterly taxes? What are you doing for bookkeeping? What are you doing for an accountant? What are you doing legally? Do you have an EIN number? Do you have a business bank account? So many people missed out on PPP money, not because their businesses weren't legit, but because they were running them out of personal bank accounts. And the big bank said, no, we will not put PPP money in a personal account. So they didn't care that they were running these personal bank accounts for 10 years until the government released all that money. And black and brown people and women were hurt disproportionately as usual, because a white man is more likely to have that business plan and formation up front when he starts his firm, whereas people who are thrust suddenly into entrepreneurship, typically women or people who've lost their job, right? It's more likely to be people like me than people like Jason, statistically. Maybe we didn't know to meet with a consultant. Maybe we didn't even know there were small business consultants. Maybe we didn't think we could afford it. Maybe we actually can't, right? So there's a reason why these things happen. I just want to be the impetus. I like to start with the foundation. Then we tackle the mindset. What is your upper limit belief? What is the most money you think you deserve to earn? And why? I've had people go, I asked them that question that I deserve. I have a questionnaire and one of them, when I say the words, I deserve to be rich, how does that make you feel? I force, it's a required question. I make them answer that. And I've never gotten a positive answer. It's usually ambivalent or I don't know about deserve or I don't know how I feel about it. I had one person tell me flat out, no, I don't deserve it. Never have I gotten a absolutely sure do. Never. Not once. It's just me. I'm the only person out here that feels like that. But here's my argument. If not you, then who? 
if not you, then who does deserve to be rich? Because we have, again, a negative connotation about the rich. If you feel as though you're a good person, you're an honest entrepreneur, you deliver what you sell, right? You sell cupcakes, they're delicious. You do hair, the hair is beautiful. You care about the health and integrity of their hair shaft. You rebuild the keratin. You frame their face. You look at the shape of their eyes and you make a masterpiece. You're an excellent stylist, right? If you don't deserve the money, who does? Sit with that for a minute. Well, I don't think anyone deserves to be rich. Ah, so you think everyone should be poor. Well, no, I don't think everyone should be poor. Which is it? I can't be rich. I can't be poor. I should be middle class. Define middle class. How much money is enough money? Because in California, 100000 in certain parts is nothing. But here, you can buy a three-bedroom, three-bathroom home, brick, two-story, with a pool for 200 k And your mortgage payment's like 1400 a month for that. So yeah, you can make 6000 a month and be living on top of the world, right? So, and I force people to come to terms with the fact that all of these things are made up. There's no rhyme or reason to it. It's just preconceived notion. It's just how they were raised or how they brought up or how their parents were. None of it's true. None of it's true. None of it's true. And while I understand that, that being rich doesn't solve all your problems, being poor solves nothing, nothing. No thing has been accomplished from not having the resources to pay for healthcare, not having the resources to live in a safe home, not being able to send your children to the best school. There's no merit in that. I don't know why people would fight for that. And it's interesting how people champion for poverty. <laughs> they're like, well, no, those rich people are bad. Well, at least their needs are met. I mean, I'm just, just going to call a spade a spade. I'd rather be a rich, unhappy person than a poor, unhappy person if I had to choose being unhappy one way or the other. And I think morality has nothing to do with it. I'm a Christian. I treat people well. Hard stop. I'm not going to steal. I'm not going to lie. And I'm not going to abuse you no matter what. The dollar amount in my bank account is not going to change who I am. And if it did, I was never really the good person I claim. I just didn't have the resources to be a shitty person. That's all that is. I just wasn't able to be mean and rude because I didn't have any leverage, right? And as soon as I got the leverage, <laughs> I was awful. Like I wanted to be the whole time. I was just nice because I needed you, right? I was a user. That's what really happens. Money doesn't change people into bad people. They were bad people. They just had to masquerade as nice guys. You know, you ever met somebody who needed a place to stay? They wanted a place to crash. They're really nice until you let them move in. And then they show their real character, right? They don't cook. They don't clean. They don't really like you. They call you names. This doesn't happen to me because my home is off limits, but I've seen it happen. People are really nice until they get what they want. That doesn't mean that they change. It means that they put on a farce to begin with. And sometimes we need to just accept that we got duped and stop blaming the money. The money didn't make them bad people. Money doesn't have that power. My money does. Cause you know, my money's like fancy, but like in real life, right? The money in your bank account, it doesn't have the power to change you as a person. It wishes it did. Money wishes it, it has. It's like similar politicians that we've had lately. They wish they did everything the press gave them credit for. You know, they wish. No, absolutely not. Money does what you tell it to do, not the other way around. 
So money didn't tell you to be an awful person. You were just an awful person and no one caught it. But I push on that deserve and I ask them, if not you, then who? You're the good Christian, decent person. If you don't deserve it, who does? The evil people? Just so I'm clear, does Beyonce deserve it? Why? Oh, because she works hard. You don't work hard? Well, she's so beautiful. So you aren't beautiful. Well, that's not what I'm saying. But what are you saying? Why does Beyonce deserve to be rich and you don't? Because if you find a Beyonce supporter, they ride hard for B. That beehive is dangerous. They are nuts. Okay, if you can't tell, I'm a super Jay-Z fan. And I think Jay-Z is more famous than Beyonce. And when people call Jay-Z Beyonce's husband, my brain literally sets aflame. He's freaking 15 years older than her. He was rich when she was a child. How on earth? <laughs> How on earth? But then I sound like I'm a fan of patriarchy. So I just back, you know, I just, I calm down. I calm down. I calm down. I'm like, you know what? She is Beyonce's husband. That's actually not untrue. Like, let me, let me chill. Right. But you don't hear people argue that Beyonce doesn't deserve to be rich. Most people are appreciative of her work ethic and they like her. They love her. They're a fan. And if they could take money from her, they wouldn't. So why is that? What does Beyonce have that we don't have? And that's where I usually lead it. When people tell me they don't deserve it, who does deserve it? Does Beyonce deserve it? Does Warren Buffett deserve it? Does Bernie Sanders deserve it? He's a millionaire. Who does? Okay, they do. Then what do they have that you don't have? Well, they just worked hard. Okay, so why don't you work harder? That's what it sounds. It sounds like you're saying, I don't feel as though I have put in the work to be rich. So why don't we change that? Why don't we put in the work? If that's really what you're saying, right? And some people, that is how they feel. They feel they aren't established enough. They aren't old enough. They aren't wise enough. They don't know enough. And maybe there's some validity there. But I think, again, if we limit ourselves, why limit your, let the world limit you. Let the world tell you what you can't do or can't fight that. Why limit yourself? That seems odd. I'm going to big myself up. I'm going to pump myself up. I can do everything. The world's going to come at you with all kind of crazy stuff about what you can't do. Why would you push your own self down? Isn't there enough criticism and critique and evil in the world already? Why would you jump on the negative bandwagon? It's just weird. People are weird sometimes. This reminds me what you're saying, Natalie, and a lot of what you said today. I'm thinking back to when I first heard you speak on Clubhouse, which I have on record because I messaged you while you were speaking. It was on January 26, 2021. So I was probably on Clubhouse for three to four weeks. And you had a room called Charging Your Worth. And I was very drawn to that. I loved what you were saying about money and business. And I wish that I had a record of it because I remember there was like one sentence you said in particular, and I was so blown away by it. And one thing that you said that you were going to send to anyone who was listening to you was this Instagram post that you still have up. We'll link to it in our show notes, along with anything else that we reference here today. So for the listener, if you go to our website, wellevator.com, which is spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. Go to our podcast. There's a full transcript. There'll be quotes from Natalie. There'll be links to everything. So you've got it all there in one place, along with the video. If you're not already watching on YouTube, if you'd like to see Natalie's beautiful, shining face, she is so radiant. So I really encourage you to go see her there. 
But I'm also going to link to this Instagram post. And the title of it is how to say, sorry, I'm not doing that for free. And I think this is what really resonated with me, Natalie, and what really drew me in and thinking about how hard it's been for me to figure out my worth. And and worth ties into this conversation around what I deserve, right? And as you're speaking, I'm sitting here reflecting like, hmm, I wonder where I fall in this spectrum. Like if we hadn't had this conversation, you just asked or you had had that questionnaire and I was filling it out. I'm curious what I would write. (laughs) So it's, it's hard to say now because of everything that you shared. But I would say I I probably do have some struggles around worth and what I deserve, especially because I have said yes to plenty of things for free. And especially because I have a hard time figuring out my rates as a coach, as a consultant, all the different work that I do. I do some influencer marketing sometimes. Jason and I have sponsors on this podcast. Like I bring in income from a lot of different sources. And one of the hardest things for me is figuring out how much to charge. I get incredibly uncomfortable setting a rate. I get uncomfortable asking for a rate. I immediately start to think, oh my gosh, this person's going to think I'm charging too much. Maybe I should bring it down a little bit so that they'll say yes, right? But I also have a tendency, which I'm really working on right now, to not do things for free. And I found that it's a big undoing. It's an unraveling. It's looking back as you were talking about like your history with money, Natalie. I think you fall into a minority of people who have that mental privilege of being raised that like the emotional experiences you had are rare. I don't hear many people sharing what you have with your parents, you know, especially. And I think that's just a remarkable thing. And it's remarkable that you have this purpose of helping people with these things. And and I'm fascinated by the psychology of money and the mindset of money as you've been talking about. And what is it that leads us, you know, as a woman, there's that side of it where women have often struggled to feel worthy of finances. There's still statistically women get paid less than men. Of course, there's ageism and racism, and there's just every ism you can imagine for somebody being discriminated against. And, and a lot of people just feel like, well, let me do this for the opportunity, or let me, you were saying, like, build up my experience. Like, how do I get these big jobs? And just looking at these tips that you have, and I'd love to summarize a few of them and then hear some of the things that you've probably learned a lot on Clubhouse since we met four months ago. So number one is you can say, thank you for thinking of me. This sounds like a great fit. Can I just check whether this is a paid opportunity? I love just having that language, first of all. like That's such a gift that you give, Natalie, because I wouldn't have even thought to phrase something that way. And when I read that, I feel empowered. I feel like, oh, okay, that makes sense to me. I can send this. It still makes me a little nervous. <laughs> still makes me uncomfortable this, to ask sometimes. And to your point, Natalie, you often don't get something unless you ask for it. But a lot of people are uncomfortable asking. Number two, this sounds like such an interesting project. Here's a link to the current services I offer. I think blank would be the best fit for, or here's a copy of my media kit, which includes my rate card. Another side note, I really struggle to put together media kits and rate cards. I second guess everything. And I'm trying to work on that. It's been really tough for me. Number three, thank you so much for considering me for this. Unfortunately, I'm unable to take on any unpaid projects at the moment. But if that changes in the future, I'd love to get back in touch. I love that one. That's like me right now. (laughs) I cannot take on unpaid projects. So 
just reading that out loud, Natalie, I'm like, oh, right, I'm going to use that soon. And the number four, thanks so much for your inquiry. Out of respect for my paying clients, I'm unable to give detailed advice via DM, but here's where you can book a consultation and I have a wealth of free resources here. Honestly, just reading that list, Natalie, I feel so empowered. So I just want to thank you for that. Revisiting it four months later, it's like, wow. First of all, did you, is that your original post? Is that something that you made? Are those all your words? Um, I imagine it is because it doesn't have any like watermark or anything. And then I would love to hear any perspective you have sent over this time on Clubhouse because I imagine there's so many people like myself who've gone into your rooms and felt moved and shared their stories. And I imagine it's been like a big like data mine, for lack of a better term, where you're just learning so much about people's psychology around money and like what they're challenged with. And I, I must be in the majority, but I'd love to hear if I'm wrong about that. Like, are the majority of people like me where we're just like, struggling with finding our worth and saying no or or positioning ourselves properly? Like, what are you finding about people's states of minds? You are definitely normal. You are in the majority, 98% textbook. Isn't that kind of shocking? Like 90% of people are having these struggles. My next question is why? Like, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with us because I don't want to like, I don't want to make our mindset worse, like putting shame on it, you know? But my big curiosity is like, how do we get here and how do we move through it? And you are the best person to ask this question. I won't say 98% of people, but 98% of women. Yeah, for sure. One, I'm going to say the reason for this is because women are typecast as nurturers. We are trained from childhood to help people. They've done experiments with small children. If you have two boys and they're playing on the monkey bars and one of them falls, the child who did not fall is more likely to say, hey, get up and get back up here than he is to say, I'll climb down and help you up. If you get a boy and a girl and the girl falls, the boy is more likely to say, hey, are you okay? Climb back up here so we can keep playing. If the boy falls, the girl is most likely to climb down and help the boy who fell. If it's two girls, the girl will usually sympathize with the girl who fell. Not only will she climb down to help, but she will mimic the behavior of the one who fell. So if she's crying, then the sympathetic one who came down will cry as well. So we're training our children early, young, five, six, seven years old. That as a girl, they are expected to tend to people, to care for people, to watch out for people, to nurture people, even people they aren't related to, friends, neighbors, colleagues, a woman walking down the street. If you're pushing your cart in the grocery store and you see something fall out of a woman's purse in front of you, what are you going to do? Oh, ma'am, 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 you dropped this, you dropped this here, here. I didn't want you to lose it. It could be a penny. That's what society tells women. We're tasked to do. We are forced. We must. This is what encompasses your femininity, helpfulness. Even the Bible talks about it, being a help meet for man, helpfulness, help, 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 help. And for some reason, women think help is free. Even I've never been able to figure out that correlation. I'll be honest with you. The help thing I get, I help Dave every day. I cater to my man, but I don't work for free. So that's a strange one. I'll admit I haven't really gotten down into the psychology of working for free. 
still working on it, formulating some, some things. I will say this much. We really just ought to outsource things we're not good at. We really just should. You've been struggling with this pricing, you and thousands of women. Just hire someone to set the damn prices for you. I mean, it's so simple. It seems crazy. But like, if that's not your gift, like me and tech support, I don't build my own websites. I don't handle my own email. The only social media I do is my own DMs. And that's because I send a lot of voice messages to encourage people because my voice is my gift. So I will never outsource my DMs. I don't care if it's a thousand DMs a day. I answer my DMs. That is what I do because no one's going to sound like me. I like being in real time. I love being able to give people feedback and keep them going. Just one more day, just one more day of doing your gift might be the difference between you quitting and you not quitting. So I don't want to outsource that. But everything else, everything else, outsource it. Outsource it, pay somebody, right? I think we get really hung up on the how much should I charge, but it's personal. You know how much work it takes to run a podcast. I don't. So you would be much more equipped to tell me how much does this cost? You have time. You have all this expensive equipment. You have your opportunity costs. You could be cooking dinner. You could be having a leisurely stroll. It's still daytime in California. You've lost something by being here with me. There's a cost. And you know better than I do what that cost means to you, right? So I think it's not that we don't know how much to charge. It's that we don't feel comfortable saying the number because we equate sales to bad. Being a salesperson is bad. Being pushy is bad. People don't want to be sold. And that's a lie. People love to be sold. They love it. They want it. They expect it. They're disappointed when you don't do it. Whitney, you have two beautiful pieces of artwork. When you saw that artwork, you thought, man, that is cool. I wonder if I could buy that. I wonder how much it costs. If the owner would have come out and said that is not for sale, how would you have felt? You telling me you would have felt good that you couldn't buy that cool piece of art? You would have been relieved that you couldn't buy the art. You would have been mad that he, no, you wanted to buy it. You wanted to buy it. You gave him money. You were happy about it. And you got home and you hung it proudly on your wall where it still stands. And you ain't remorse. You have no remorse about it. You wanted to buy it. Wanted to, wanted to, wanted to. So that whole, when you sell people something, you're hurting them, you're harming them, you're taking their hard-earned money, you're being mean, you're being guilty, you're being greedy. God has blessed you so much you don't really even need the money. What is that? All of that is false. It's completely untrue. People, our country has a negative savings rate. Let me put that in English. In America, adults spend more money than they have by the use of credit. Let me try that again. If a person earns $100,000 a year, they're spending one hundred five, and you're going to tell me that sales is bad and that people don't want to buy things, then why is our savings rate so low if people don't buy things? I'm just, I'm just thinking about facts here. The fact is people want to hire you. People like success. People like the experience of dealing with a professional. People enjoy spending money. It gives them a dopamine hit. It gives them an adrenaline rush. They've done CAT scans of people spending money. It's equivalent to sex. On some people, it's equivalent to sugar and drugs. Spending money. Money. That same money you're afraid to ask for, they're giving to somebody else. 
So it's not that people don't like sales and it's not that people aren't buying stuff and it's not that people aren't happy about it. You just aren't getting your fair share of it. That's my argument. That's my argument with all the women who say that they're afraid to charge more money. If I told you today, Whitney, I can do a competitive pricing analysis, give me two hours and I will assess all of your streams of income and your current business model. I will put it up against similarly situated peers. I will do market research on your target audience and I will charge you $5,000, but that I will show you where you could increase profitability in your company by $200,000 this year. Would you pay it? Yes. <laughs> I'd pay five at a chance at 200. I'd pay 5,000 even if it only net me 10, right? I still won. As long as I get my 5,000 back, I'm happy. The problem is that people don't want to invest because of that fear. Again, that negative feeling about taking money from people. We also have a fear of paying people too. We're afraid to invest. It's twofold. So when I come in and say, you can pay me and I can help you make more money, the fear is, but I don't know if I can make more money. I don't know if I deserve more money. No one's going to pay me more money, Natalie. No one's going to pay these high prices that you're talking about. Well, then how are there coaches that charge $50,000 a year for coaching? How do they stay in business if no one's paying them? How? How? Explain. Explain. And there are $50,000 coaches. There are $100,000 masterminds. They exist. Someone paid it. But if you don't ask, how do you get to it? Right? If I tell you, Whitney, you know, I heard you on Clubhouse and you talked about how pricing was difficult for you. So I would like to offer you a free discovery call. I normally charge a small fee because people are tire kickers. But for you, I like you. You vetted me. I vet you. Let's hop on a call. We hop on a call and you start telling me about Jason and about how long you've been running this podcast and how well it's going. And I say, you know what? I, I think I can help you. I do. And I have good news for you because I actually have some availability the week of May the 10th. Now, I know you're thinking that's a few weeks out, but that's going to give you some time to do some homework so I can really hone in. It's a six week program and it costs blank and it does blank and it's X amount. And I'm confident as shit. It's X amount. You're going to think this girl is really on it. This girl is really on top. I thought she was sharp on Clubhouse, but man, I can tell she has an MBA. If anybody could fix my problem, it's Natalie. Her confidence makes me confident in her abilities. I just don't see how a person who talks this talk could not be the real deal. I think I'm going to take a chance. I think I'm going to pay it and I'm going to pay it in full and I'm going to step out on faith. That's what happens. But when you are not confident, when you stutter with the number, when you say, I'll get back to you, you don't let people off the phone on a sales call without a number. It's a sales call. That's like going to, to a restaurant and they let you leave without feeding you. It's cruel. Think about the person who asked you for that media kit. Think about the person who asked you for that press kit. Think about the person who asked you for an invoice. Why would I ask if I wasn't going to pay you? I want to pay you. So if everybody listening, if I can just dig those few things into your psyche, people like to buy. People enjoy the process of spending money. In fact, that's why they earn it. People literally go to work to be able to afford vacations and cars and shoes and luxury homes and eyeglasses and artwork. That's why they go to work. That's why they work jobs they hate. So they can spend all the money on crap. 
<laughs> why did he go to work? So like the idea that you're like harming them somehow by solving their problems and asking for money in exchange is ludicrous. They want to give it to you. They just don't know they want to give it to you yet because you haven't told them how awesome you are. You just haven't, you just haven't expressed it. That's it. You're like the artist that hasn't painted it yet. You're literally the artist in front of the blank canvas. There's people who want the art. You got to paint the art. So I just want you to, to think, one, you could outsource this. And that's anybody listening. If something is a pain point in your business for more than a couple of months, it's a choice. That's a decision. That's not a pain point anymore. You've decided that you're just going to make do. And that's probably not how you become a millionaire. And two, we have to get around this help for free. Free is problematic. Free harms people. If you were a single mom and you were poor and I walked up to you unsolicited and said, I'm a coach and I think that every woman should have a small business and I'm going to coach you for free. What have I done? I've demoralized you. I've typecast you. I've stereotyped you. I've shown you sympathy you didn't ask for. I've told you I don't believe you can pay for my services. I don't think you have any resources. I think you need my help. I'm going to do it for free. So that may feel altruistic on your side, philanthropic even. How does the person receiving it feel? How would your target market like to know that you think they're too broke to afford your service at full price? Because it's kind of what you're saying, right? When you say, I know my service is worth 10000 but I'm afraid to sell it at 10000 because people won't pay 10000 Well, why won't they pay it? Do they have it and won't give it to you? Because that sounds more like a positioning or marketing problem than a sales problem. Or are you saying they don't have it and that's why they won't give it to you? Also, they're poor. They can't afford your services. These are bad tropes to fall into. Let people decide what they can afford. That's not your job to make a decision about other people's pockets. And people don't transform for free. Everyone listening to the, me or will be listening to me has a folder of freebies. They have a folder in their email of free content they signed up for with some throwaway email address of five tips to fitness, two tips to pay for trips to Europe with credit card points, five ways to get rid of mask knee. We got a, it runs the gamut. We got a thousand of them. When do you read them? When do you implement them? When people give you books for free, do you read them? Because your brain doesn't value something you didn't put a commitment towards. You don't have any skin in the game when people give you free. It doesn't resonate. Your mind doesn't sense the significance. And if your brain doesn't feel it's significant, it won't act on it, which means when you coach people for free, they don't treat you as an authority. They don't listen to your coaching and they don't do what you told them to do. If they had paid you $10,000, I bet they would listen. So you rob people of a transformation when you charge them too little and you do things for free. You shortchange them and you burn yourself out. You create a business that makes you resentful. I would be resentful of a roster full of clients who paid me 25% of my market rate. And I'd be mad at my own self for doing it. I'm trademarking a phrase. Don't price yourself into poverty. It was my first workshop. It was impactful. It will become a book and a keynote speech. 
Don't price yourself into poverty. It's strong because people think their clients are the reason they're broke. Ask a person who's not making enough money in their business and they will somehow come back to blaming the customer. I have customers who can't pay. I have invoices outstanding. I don't know enough people. I haven't met them. It's, it's the people. It's the world. It's society. It's not them. Very few people have really come down to terms with the fact that they just aren't charging enough money. Their business idea just isn't viable. They just aren't doing it at a rate that's sustainable to pay all their bills and build a legacy. They just aren't. And who has the privilege of setting prices in your business? You do. (laughs) So if the prices are too low, you did it. So again, hire someone in finance who can do a competitive analysis, price your stuff, get with you an accountant that's a strong tax strategist, really hone in on your goals, talk to your husband, meet with a financial advisor, do something. Get a number that you need to make, break it into 12, and ask yourself, what can I do to make that amount? And then it becomes clear that the answer is charge for my expertise. It's glaringly clear when you do it that way. So I would say stay away from free and don't twist in the wind about it. Sometimes you have to make an investment. I have invested a scary amount of money in business coaching. Coaches have coaches. I invested pre-revenue. So I put money in when I had nothing to show for it at all, right? But I think it's panned out for me. And I think you have to lean into your strength. And my strength is being very persuasive in speech. But if that's not your gift, that's okay. You just have to figure out what it is and lean into it. My fiance is one of the most quiet people I have ever met. But he takes the most breathtaking, stunning photographs that I have ever seen. And I don't say that because I'm biased. So it doesn't matter if he's a a powerful orator. He's an expert in his craft. When he talks to people on shoots, they get comfortable. He puts them at ease and they take a natural, beautiful photograph. That's a skill. So if he can just sell that skill, he's golden. You just got to figure out what your skill is and really, really sell it. So hopefully that helps. Natalie, as we, uh, I guess, get closer to the finish line, I do have a question about identity and our sense of self related to how much we earn. And I want to use this as an example from the exploration of my own mentality around hustling, making more money year after year, all those things. And about four or five years ago, I had a a TV series on the cooking channel. I had my first cookbook come out. I was doing a lot of stuff and I was making the most money that I had ever made in my entire life, like beyond, beyond. I had a couple of years where I was like, damn. But I remember kind of feeling into my sense of who I was based on how much I was earning. And I want to say this because I feel like, and this is a, a sweeping generalization, okay? For the most part, I think that women or people that identify as female are generally, th- their worth in our culture is generally based on their appearance and their sexual attractiveness, generally, I think on a baseline. Men or people that identify as masculine, generally based on society's values, are based on their ability to generate material wealth. How much do you make? Is he a good, like you were saying about Jay-Z, the judgment about Jay-Z, Beyonce wouldn't be with me if it wasn't that rich. I've experienced my own version of that, where I have dated certain people that were evaluating my worth as a person and a man based on my net worth. And so I have had to do a lot of work around unraveling my sense of worth as a person and a man based on those numbers in my account saying that, doesn't mean I don't want to earn more, 
but I'm very careful not to judge how I perceive my sense of who I am and the depth of my value in this world based on those numbers in the account. And I think it's a very slippery slope for a lot of people in the sense that if I just make more money, I'll feel better about myself. But the danger is if some shit goes down or that money goes away, then their sense of who they are is to attach to it. So my question, Natalie, I suppose on a maybe a psychological and a spiritual level is how do we engage in this aim of generating more wealth and riches in our life so we have the freedom to do the things we want to do, like you supporting your dad paying for his medical expenses, like me supporting my mom as she ages, whatever it is we want to do, but not conflate the pursuit of wealth with the sense that we are a better person as a result of it. Can you break that down and maybe your psychological and spiritual framework around that? I definitely agree with your sweeping generalizations. They're almost fact. And it's one of those things, right, where I think it's unfortunate that we have attached dollar signs to morality or value with people because they're completely, completely separate. (laughs) It's a strange thing that we've done to, like you said, conflate these unrelated attributes, in my opinion. I judge myself based on the number of people I help. That is my basis. My goal about 12 years ago was to make three people laugh per day, and I have not missed a day yet. I have had financial problems, and that's what people don't always recognize. I have been broke before. I've had to sleep on a friend's couch before. I've had to move out of my own apartment to get away from a potentially abusive partner. Thank God I left before what I think a catastrophic event was coming. I filed bankruptcy. That's traumatic as a business major. It's taken me eight or nine years to be able to say that and not cry. But I think we have to get to a point where we help people first. I believe God will reward my helpfulness. I think by being a servant to my community and a friend of mankind that I will get material wealth as a byproduct, but I'm not out to solely get the money. That's where people err. I want to be rich and I'm going to trample on people to get it. I'm going to lie, cheat, steal, whatever it takes, make an inferior product, make untrue claims, scam, scheme, lie on my taxes, do PPP fraud, because that's what gets my bottom line up there. And I think a fool and his money will soon part. And if you get it the wrong way, you will lose it. But when I think about the women who have been able to leave an abusive relationship because now they have the financial means to do so, when I think about the parents who were able to open 529 plans, my student loan payment is $1,200 a month. I think we really need to talk about that in society, how crazy that number is. It's more than my mortgage and car note combined. I just need people to understand in Alabama, that is a crazy number. My mortgage is 908 and my car loan is 285. It's nuts. And so... If I can get a woman to a revenue goal that we're after taxes and her owners draw, she can fund a 529 plan for her child. That means her child won't go through this. 
her child won't have that debt. I have broken the chains off that child. I have broken the chains off of that child. That is generational wealth. That's the legacy we're talking about right there. So it's not about, oh, she paid me $2,000 and I coached her. No, 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 no. That is what I hate for people to harp on. Don't focus on that. That's a teeny sliver of the story that should be told. The story that should be told is how a woman was able to enlarge her territory, grow her business by serving her customers, price herself competitively, stop trading time for dollars so she can spend quality time with her child like my mother did with me and have a tribe and be able to affirm her child. Why? Because she's affirmed. How do you raise whole, balanced, enriched children when you're struggling and poor? You can't. You're going to speak negativity into that child because you're speaking negativity into yourself. You can't pour from an empty cup. So I've literally changed the trajectory of that family, right? That whole family is different now. They're on a debt-free journey. They can put their child in the best school and never have to worry about student loan debt. I was able to convince a young woman to get life insurance on a relative who passed less than two years later. So instead of setting up a GoFundMe account, which is what happened at the last murder, cold blood of a black man in Minneapolis that I donated to, instead of that, she got a $100,000 check. Instead of setting up a GoFundMe and selling fish plates, right? So I don't really care about the money per se, because it's coming. Again, I'm in an abundance mindset. I don't believe in scarcity. The money's out there. It's everywhere, right? They call it currency for a reason. It flows like a current in the river. It's all around me all the time. It wants me. It loves me. So I don't have to be laser focused on that. And I hope that people don't say Natalie's a valuable person because she has money now. I would hate that. That that would be a waste. Now, I think most of my value is in my intellect and my emotional intelligence. That's where I think the bulk of my value lies. But I do think I have some value in generosity and I do think I'm quite funny. I'm also a hell of a dancer. So, you know, whatever quality you'd like to choose is fine. But I I don't want to be known as Natalie, the snobby millionaire. Natalie has so much money now. She's too good for me. My hope would be that people never actually found out how much money I had. That I was like that sleeper millionaire that like paid off layaways at Walmart. The the sneaky guy who puts $10,000 in the um, kettle Salvation Army every year. There's a sneaky guy who somehow slips 10K in an envelope, in a slot. Every year they can't catch him. Every year. They've been trying to catch him like two decades to tell him thank you. How you get a wad of cash that thick down in that little slot is like gold. But that's what I want to do. I want to be known as a a liberator of people who feel like they are in chains, right? My grandfather lived 92 years and I took it very hard because he picked me up from school and kept me while my mom worked a second job from kindergarten through 10th grade. So I literally saw my grandfather every school year day (laughs) in all of my formative years. And when he passed, I don't remember much of the funeral because I was far too traumatized to have been there. But they read a poem called The Side of the Road. And it talked about a man 
who lived below his means intentionally so that he could be a friend to mankind and live in his small home by the side of the road. And I thought to myself, here I've been thinking my whole life that my grandfather was just austere, that he grew up in 1925 and was a product of the Great Depression. You telling me he could have had something nicer, but he chose to stay in this community on this very small street in this very unimpressive home just to help people? I had to sit with that. I wasn't prepared for that. So I don't know. I think it's really important that we not get too attached to the money. Money is a tool. That's it. Money is a tool to get you more freedom, more time, more impact to help more people. If you're coaching for $49 an hour, you can only coach so many people. You're not giving your clients the time and effort they need because you have to coach 50 of them to pay your bills. If you had a group coaching program that was priced accurately, you could help more people, make more money, make the program better, (laughs) right? Because you had the resources to do so and really change the lives of the participants. I don't want people to think, Natalie wants me to make a whole lot of money so I can be popular. You notice I never talk about being popular or famous or buying a whole bunch of crap. Pay off your debt, guys. Buy life insurance. It's non-negotiable. If George Floyd had had a million-dollar life insurance policy, obviously it would not have brought him back. But I think the insurance companies would start getting involved if we got gunned down and million-dollar checks started getting cut, I think something would happen. But we can't say our lives matter if we're living below, 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 below our gift. I've heard that phrase, what's more expensive, living beyond your means or living below your gift? And I think so many of us have so much and a talent and we're afraid of rejection. So we're pricing it low and we're afraid to speak up because we don't trust our voice. We're so fearful. But what if you were bold? What if you could change just one person? What if there's one person who will listen to this and think she's right? It's me. I'm going to get on my next call and I'm going to crush it. Not for the money because my people deserve it. I'm going to get in that clubhouse room. I'm going to raise my hand. I'm going to add value. I'm going to go on Facebook Live with mask me, and I'm going to look how I look, and maybe I'm not thin, and maybe I've put on quarantine 20 pounds, but I have important information that the world needs to hear, and I'm going to try it. Maybe I should start that podcast. I've always wanted a podcast. Maybe I should write that book. I've always wanted a book. If just one person nudges a little bit closer to their destiny because of something I said, I won. And if it never translates into multi-million dollars, that's fine. I just, again, I want to have wealth, not rich. I want to be able to help a few clients, do a couple speaking engagements at my leisure, come home to Dave, lay out on the couch, watch TV, read a book, and not worry, how are we going to pay the mortgage? We don't fight about house cleaning. We hired a housekeeper. 
And that's something we can afford now because we've prioritized how do we streamline our businesses for profit and not burnout? Why would I spend an hour and a half, two, three hours cleaning when he could be doing a shoot and I could be doing a coaching session? We're losing like a thousand dollars an hour trying to clean our own house when I could just pay her well, right? Not crappy wages that I think people who clean homes deserve pay her well so that she could create wealth for her family. It's cyclical. I get my groceries delivered on Instacart. I tip the amount of the groceries. I tip the amount of the groceries so she can say, wow, I love Instacart. I'm going to keep doing this. This is great. She has a strong incentive to pick the best, healthiest looking groceries for me, right? Because ain't nobody tipping like that. But hopefully that keeps her going another day, whoever my shopper is. That's what it's about. It's not money for the sake of money. It's not money for the hell of it. It's not money to buy a Lamborghini. It's money to impact the community in which you live. And I've done that. I'm going to keep doing it. And if God gives me 59 more years and I tie John, then I will be that person with the house on the side of the road. I'll always have this home. I'll always think about it. That's why I admire Warren Buffett. He's been living in that house for 30 years. With the same wife, with the same house, with the same kids, very stable. I'm a fan. And I think we should really focus on what brings us joy. That's your gift. And lean into that and stop chasing success for the sake of success and stop convincing yourself that rich people have wronged you. Because if you make $50,000, you probably don't hobnob with as many rich people as you might think. Until I started working at the bank, I didn't really know wealthy people, to be honest. They don't really hang out in my circle, capiche? So I think we've let the news and media convince us of how strangers feel about us and how we should feel about them. Maybe disconnect from media, you know, turn your TV service off for 30 days and see how much more clearly you start to think. So I know we're running low on time, but I just I had to preach today and I appreciate you all giving me a platform to do so. Well, we appreciate you being here so much, Natalie. At the beginning, Jason said he anticipated on this being therapeutic, and that's absolutely how I felt. It's been moving. It's been inspirational. It's been educational. And I'm just so honored that you took the time to share that, not just with us, but with the listener. It's a true gift. And I am so grateful that we have a transcript because I've been over here furiously taking notes (laughs) on some of the gems that I've felt. But for listeners, they can go and actually read through here. They can copy and paste. They can share this. They can tag you on Instagram, Natalie, join your clubhouse rooms and really continue the conversation, maybe join that Facebook group. You provide so many phenomenal resources for people. And first and foremost, it's just your words. You truly do have a gift with words and as a speaker. And I'm so glad that you have pursued that and shared that gift because it really would be a big disservice if you didn't. So thank you so much for taking all this time, for sharing it all. And we're grateful this has been recorded so you can share it too and, and maybe help <laughs> help other people next time they say, uh, hey, we need some advice. You've got something that you can, <laughs> another resource to share and hopefully not something that just sits in somebody's inbox. I love that you said that too, because wow, 
the amount of things that I have, the amount of knowledge that's out there for free that I have not implemented is astounding. And we've noticed that so many people just, they take it in and then they move on to the next thing instead of implementing. So we hope that you, the listener, take the time to reflect on this. To your point, Natalie, that cue to disconnect from the news and media for a bit to really reflect on what you just heard. So if you want to see the transcript, read the resources, find Natalie, that's all at our website, wellevator.com, which again is spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. That's also our social media. And the word Wellevator comes from elevating your wellness. It could even be elevating your wealth, which will probably be the title of this episode. <laughs> so, so that's our aim here is to put you on that elevator to go up and give you the tools from incredible people like Natalie. So thanks again, Natalie, for being here. And we look forward to seeing what you do moving forward. Thank you. This was awesome. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to Wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.